beautiful day here outside of Boulder, Colorado. Just like my favorite time of year. Um, I'm trying not to be attached, but I have to say I'm totally attached. I wish it could just freeze and uh, never get any different than this. So um, a few little housekeeping things. We've, we've added a little um, button on this particular escapade where you can make a little donation if you're so inclined. Um, that's not the spirit of why I'm doing this. I really, really enjoy what I'm doing. It's a free offering. But what we are going to do is we're going to start transcribing these sessions um, because as they start to gather, there are some really good questions coming in. And for people, you know, instead of like plowing through an hour and a half of each session trying to find um, the material discussed, what we're going to do is transcribe the these little dealies, edit out all the names so they're, they're anonymous, and that way highlight the questions so that when people come, um, they can kind of troll, scroll down and find out which particular question they want to uh, perhaps address. And so um, it, it does cost a wee bit to do that sort of thing, and that's one reason we did the, the hit the donate button. So if that speaks to you, we would appreciate it. Um, and also in, in a, an ongoing gesture of shameless self-promotion, um, a week from today, um, we'll have one more session. Of course, we'll keep going as long as you people show up. I'll keep showing up. Um, we start this little adventure with Bob Thurman. Um, and on the 28th in the evening, that's a freebie. That's, that's an open free talk where I'll be doing a little thing. Bob Thurman will be doing a little thing. And you'll get a sense of, of what we're going to be presenting over that then following weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then the, the, also the following Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Um, both those three-day events, which will have a, a talk in the morning for th uh, and talk in practice, actually. The meditation part is a pretty big part of this program. This is a, a the, actually the first session, the first week-long deep dive into a series of four intensive week-long dives that I've um, designed over the next coming four years as a concerted uh, deep exploration um, for an exhaustive preparation for death. If you really want to get ready from a, a you know, wisdom tradition point of view, obviously emphasis on Tibetan bardo teachings, these sets of programs, um, one, one week a year for the next four years on each of the bardos and then one on pure lands is one way to kind of get into it. So they're recorded. If you miss something, you can come back in. We've lopped the price in half from the original price to what it is now. And so just a way, if, if you're interested in joining, um, this is a program I'm particularly excited about because even though I've interviewed Bob and I've gotten to know him a little bit behind the scenes, um, I've never actually actively co-taught with him. And I'm really excited about it because he's amazing. I mean, he, he's translated the Tibetan Book of the Dead. He's really knowledgeable in Bardo literature. He's one of the, um, arguably, one of the real forefathers of Tibetan Buddhism in the West, a very, very deep, close friend of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, founder of Tibet House in New York City. I mean, his CV is just off the charts. And plus, he's just a gas. Uh, I refer to him as a hoot with a heart. Um, very playful, very intelligent, and just, a, um, you know, I actually have attended his teachings, but I've never co-taught. So I personally am very excited to jump, jump into this dance with Bob, and we'll just see what happens. So it's interesting. Um, what Andy said, I didn't realize this was our seventh week. That, you know, like 108 is an auspicious number. Uh, 49 days is a somewhat auspicious number. Um, allegedly, this is the amount of time 
that um, on average, and again, who knows, you know, I, did they take like some exit poll here? Um, but according to the tradition, 49 days is about the average time that a person will spend in the bardos after we die. Um, and largely, there's a lot of reasons like, well, why, why does it take 49 days? Well, it has to do with the, the, the playing out or the teasing out of our habits, um, karma. And um, no one but a fully awakened one, a Buddha really understands karma. We toss that term around somewhat glibly, but it is among the most complex, sophisticated, difficult topics in all of Eastern thought, not just Buddhism. Um, it's completely conjoined with the teachings on emptiness. And so to really understand karma is not such a simple thing. And so it takes about 49 days for all these weaves, um, in particular, the main kind of currents of what are called heavy karma, um, proximate karma, habitual karma, and random karma to kind of play themselves out. Um, there are certain people that are, uh, that are called Bardo VIPs. <laughs> Those that have either really, really heavy, heavy, heavy good karma, like the saints and sages, for those people that have tremendously good karma, there is no bardo. They literally skip go, they go right to wherever they're going to go, which is either pure land, um, higher human birth, God realm or the light. This is real, you know, kind of Buddhist cosmology if you believe in this sort of thing. And then conversely, they're, they're really bad boys, really bad girls of history whose heavy negative karma is so heavy that there's no bardo for them either. They just immediately go to, if you believe in this stuff, the so-called lower realms. And again, where are they really going? You know, it, it's not like they're going to a particular place. There is no particular place. They're basically transitioning from one dream to the next. And, and this is so interesting to me that the Buddhist teachings on, on um, the bardos and dream yoga, which I'm obviously deep into, they talk about three archetypal dreams. All the stuff, by the way, that we're exploring in nightclub. Um, so the first dream is the, what's called the example dream, the double delusion. I love that term. The double delusion of the nighttime dream. That's what we know is our nighttime dream experience. The second type of dream is actually, and these aren't necessarily in terms of, of order um, or priority. The second one is this, the primary dream. If the nighttime dream is, is the double delusion, this is the primary delusion. This is the primary dream, the so-called dream of waking reality. And then the last one is called the dream at the end of time. That refers to the bardos or what happens after we die. And so in my kind of decoding of the bardo and dream yoga literature, um, dream is really a code word for manifestation of mind. And fundamentally, what it therefore implies in a very real way is we're just simply cascading from one dream to the next. Um, and so by understanding that, we can actually prepare for the dream at the end of time by learning how to become lucid, awake, waking up to the nighttime dream. That's what lucid dreaming is all about. And so lucid dreaming is kind of the, the halfway point in a certain way, transitional point between this primary dream and then the dream at the end of time. And we can therefore use the nighttime dream, the lucid dream state, as a very direct way to prepare for death. Um, Kempel Kartar Rinpoche, other masters have said unequivocally that dream yoga arose principally as a way to prepare for death. And again, this is kind of Buddhist cosmology, but Padmasambhava, the great tantric Buddha um, who brought uh, Buddhism from India to Tibet, 
once said, actually in, in translated in the book, Natural Liberation, which parenthetically is what Bob Thurman told me he was gonna be riffing on during our week together, because this particular book is the Nyingma version of, the, of the, what are called the six bardos. Um, and so the idea here is that we can use our lucidity during the night and Padmasambhava guarantees that if we attain lucidity in the dream state seven times, and again, this is an archetypal number, don't take it literally. It's meant to be an indicator of some level of constancy and lucidity, that you have some sense of regular lucidity in your dreams. Babasambhava guarantees that that will then um, allow you to, in fact, have a lucid bardo experience. And that's the great gift of, of not only the dream yoga practices, but the daytime lucid practices. And, and that is that fundamentally, if it's just like in a nighttime dream. If we don't wake up in the dream at night and take control over it, um, which is exactly what a lucid dream allows you to do, what controls your dream? When you're in your regular non-lucid dream, who or what's controlling that? It's just your habits, habit, karma, which is why Trungpa Rinpoche said, you know, master of the one-liner, what is it that reincarnates? your bad habits. So just like in a nighttime dream, if you don't wake up and take control of the nighttime dream, your habits take control and you get pinged involuntarily around by your habits. And the wisdom traditions, not just Buddhism, but Hinduism and others say exactly the same thing happens when you die. At the dream at the end of time, if you do not attain lucidity in that dream state in exactly the same way, you don't take control over that, your habits take control. And then therefore you're buffeted around. That's when they talk about the bardos being a terrifying time. Well, they're only terrifying if you're non-lucid to it. If you're lucid to it, it's an incredibly opportune time. It's a time when due to the fluidity of the dream environment, you can actually guide the type of form, i.e. you therefore have voluntary control if you believe in this sort of thing. You have voluntary control over where you will actually take rebirth. Not just in this case a dream, but literally in an entire next lifetime. So um, that just came to mind when, when um, Andy said the seven day thing. It's also interesting, um, I've, I've been to Bodh Gaya several times, an amazingly powerful place in India where the Buddha attained his awakening. And allegedly after he attained his awakening, he arose from his you know, samadhi, actually never left his samadhi, but he arose from this awakened experience on the Bodhi, under the Bodhi tree, and basically um, really wasn't going to say a word, a word. He just, you know, he, his, his statement was more like, these teachings are so sublime, they're so refined that no one will ever understand. And so it wasn't until the gods Indra and Brahma came down, and you can see them depicted in many monasteries and in Bodh Gaya, that they supplicated the Buddha to turn the wheel of the Dharma. But interestingly enough, interestingly enough, allegedly after the Buddha's awakening, guess how long he spent before he left Bodh Gaya and started to teach? What an interesting coincidence, 49 days. So it's as if his, his enlightenment was in fact his death, the death of his ego. He sat down, Siddhartha sat down and the Buddha stood up. Siddhartha disappeared on that cushion. So Siddhartha died or Siddhartha was seen through and, and so um, it's an interesting kind of correlation between the Bardo teachings. And again, fundamentally, and this is what I try to riff on all the time, if you take a very close look at Bardo principles 
or for that matter, even dream yoga principles. These are all just different ways to talk about the teachings, the Dharma using different mediums, different expressions, frameworks of mind. Um, it's basically just Dharma recycled either in the dream state or in this case, the after death state. So that's just what popped into my head um, at this moment. And so what we're going to do is we always do, that's the heart of what we're doing here is so much more enjoyable for me. It's why I love doing this stuff because it's just not me being the talking head. You guys can be talking heads. <laughs> I'm going to have Andy start. We didn't get through all the written questions that had been kind of stockpiled from before. And again, the, the, we try to prioritize the verbal inter, um, interactive live questions, but some people are in different time zones and they have to work and whatnot. So I do want to honor some of those. And so with that said, Andy, if you want to just send a couple of those my way, we can start with those. And then as usual, we'll open it up and have our little tennis match across cyberspace here. So please. Okay, great. The best book for learning Tibetan Buddhism would be? <laughs> well, my books, of course, that's a silly question. Um, whew, the best books. Well, you know, this is interesting. It, it depends on who you are. If you're a practitioner and you're more interested in the kind of meditative contemplative components, then I have, you know, I have, these are all obviously, in my opinion, I have a very strong bias towards the absolute genius of Trungpa Rinpoche. Um, cutting through spiritual materialism should be read a dozen times. Um, the myth of freedom should be read a dozen times. Um, I, I would start with this master. Um, if you're looking for more academic approaches, Oh my gosh, there's so many here. B. Alan Wallace wrote a book. I think it's called Buddhism from the Ground Up. I don't remember all the titles. Alan's written about 40 books. Pretty prolific guy, but he, he wrote an, uh, a relatively early in his career book. Um, can't remember the complete title, but something like Buddhism from the Ground Up, an introduction to Tibetan Buddhism. John Powers also wrote uh, a nice kind of academic introduction. Um, literally may be introduction to Tibetan Buddhism. Um, I'm sure, and I can't think off the top of my head what Bob Thurman has up his sleeve, but he's incredibly prolific. Um, and in fact, his introduction, his introduction to his translation of the Tibetan Book of the Dead is really good. Um, in fact, I find very often with these translations, I've read them all, there's about a dozen translations of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I've read them all, of course because I'm a nut, and I find the introductions to be sometimes the most fruitful, rewarding aspects. Um, and so that, that's a really rich arena. Um, I'd almost have to step outside and just look. I have a different shelf devoted to that in my library outside. But there, there are different you know, trajectories here. The academics will take refuge in people like Jeffrey Hopkins, the scholars um, and the like. The, the kind of practitioner types will take refuge in people like Tulku Ujin Rinpoche, Trungpa Rinpoche, of course, Mingyur Rinpoche, Tsugyur Rinpoche. These are the guys that I find the greatest inspiration from personally, but that's just my bent. It's just my predisposition. There's, there's so much out there right now, but that's what comes to mind. If something pings on my awareness between now and the end of the session, I'll throw it back up, but that's what occurs. So we'll stay on the book theme. Uh, your new book out this fall is listed <laughs> as a workbook. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Ah, an opportunity for shameless self-promotion that was not seeded by me. Um, I have two books coming out this summer. The one that you're referring to is a, a, I haven't done a book like this before, which is the only reason I elected to do it. 
a workbook type thing through Harbinger Press called Art of Lucid Dreaming, a step-by-step -step guide to mastering your dream life. And even though I had a lot of resistance to write this book because I thought it was just another repurposing of stuff I already spit out, once I got into it, I got into it. I really quite enjoyed this thing. And it's, it's a pretty exhaustive workbook type thing where there was a lot of blanks and spaces and questions and, and practices and investigations, which um, again, when I got into it, I said, wow, this is fun. I've never done this before. I kind of I got off on it. Um, relatively short, I think 200 pages or so, um, a kind of a thorough, rigorous exploration, both from East and West. In other words, there's a lot of meditative principles, dream yoga principles, um, conjoined with kind of Western approaches to lucidity. And so I, you know, I always wanted to kind of ret retrofit some of the deeper dive books that I'm doing, which is what I really enjoy, with a more kind of on-ramp kind of uh, prequel type of book. So thank you for asking. That, that one's coming out, um, I get it mixed up, but one's coming out in uh, August, the other one's coming out in September. The other one, since I can continue to um, self-aggrandize, <laughs> is on the complete other end of the spectrum. This is part of my Dream Yoga trilogy. Um, this one's called Dreams of Light, the profound daytime practice of uh, lucid dreaming. And this is a really deep dive into the guts of dream yoga, the teachings on emptiness, um, supported with uh, a deep section on, on neuroscience, philosophy, developmental psychology, psychology and the like. So it's another one of these Eastern Western merges where um, the thesis of this book is that, you know, a lot of people do have trouble with lucid dreaming and there's a reason for that. But you can attain the same insights uh, that you get with lucid dreaming and dream yoga by engaging in certain diurnal or daily practices. Um, in addition to meditation, the big one here is the, is the practice of illusory form, julu. And uh, so the book is a way to support that, um, support the practice of illusory form. What is it? How do you do it? Why do you do it? Why is it important? Um, as a way to supplement, you know, people really want to have the fruition of, of dream yoga, but can't have lucid dreams, practice um, uh, loose reform. So thank you for the opportunity to, to put up my lemonade stand. <laughs> two books coming out this year. I do not recommend writing two books at the same time. I'm not doing that again. But anyway, I'm going to give birth to twins at the end of the summer. Cool. <clears throat> All right. I'm confused when you say the way we think and behave now is one way we can take control over what happens when we die, when it seems control is really all in letting go, or as someone said, letting go is all we have to hold on to. Yeah, that's a good one. Again, this has to do with relative and absolute approaches. On, on an absolute level, um, letting go is, is really the only thing you need to do, and really, what does that mean? It's just doing nothing, but doing it really well. If you do it, what does it say in Taoism, in the tradition of Wu Wei, by doing nothing, nothing gets left undone. And so, yes, on one level, on an absolute level, you don't have to do a thing. But that's paradoxically what makes it so difficult, because we're not human beings, we're human doings. And so because of that, because we're so well done, so to speak, when we become undone, and we just relax. I mean, death is just the ultimate sigh of relief. You take one big final exhalation, one big 
um, uh, relief, release. It couldn't be easier. That's what makes it so hard. That's it. That's what constitutes a good death. It's actually what constitutes a good life. But most people don't believe that. And again, so there we have this thing called the path. And then we have the relative dimensions with, within that, so to speak, where then you can work with things like control. And the control, the issue of control here is a very interesting one. It's really not control in the traditional sense of kind of muscling or willing things to happen. Um, it's more control in the sense of controlling one's relationship to uh, mind and reality. Because on one very deep level, we really don't have much control, right? <laughs> have you noticed? We can't really control what happens in the phenomenal world to a vast extent. And actually, we can't really control what happens in the arising of our own mind. We may have temporary moments where we can enter thought-free states and we can muscle our mind into certain um, kind of streams of concentration. But, but fundamentally, um, we can't. In, in, in a certain sense, we shouldn't even try. I mean, Miller Rapa once said, you know, um, what's the actual, it's from a song, the play of the mind cannot be stopped with hundreds of spheres. The mind cannot be trapped in an iron box. The mind just plays. Reality just plays. That's just what it does, literally. Um, Leela in, Tibet, or in uh, Sanskrit, Rolpa in Tibetan. Everything is just fundamental play, radiant, shine, display of the mind. Utterly non-problematic. No need to control that. And in fact, you really can't. You can't really control the arisings of mind and reality, but what you can control is your relationship to those arisings. And that's where control comes into play, where th something happens, you can't really control the virus, you can't really control what's going on, but you can control your relationship. And that is precisely what meditation does. I mean, meditation is an invitation to alter your relationship to the display of your own mind. Um, and within that, within that arena, here's another kind of riff on it. Suzuki Roshi in his you know, incredible book. Here's another good book, not on, on Tibetan Buddhism, but on Buddhism altogether. One of my all-time favorites, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, Suzuki Roshi. Absolute masterpiece of a book. And in this book, somewhere in there, he says something along the lines, if you want to control a herd of cattle, you don't trap them in a corral, you give them a pasture. So mind control in this sense is, is almost paradoxical. It's, it's you're controlling your mind with space. You're actually controlling your mind with freedom. So that's important because otherwise you get this kind of self-improvement, muscular kind of, I gotta do something, I gotta control. It's not control in that, re in that regard. You're actually allowing, you're accommodating everything to arise. You're, you're putting a welcome mat onto reality and saying yes to whatever arises. Um, but in addition to this welcome mat, you also want to put an exit sign because otherwise you grab on to what you want, you cultivate it, you, you know, push away what you don't want. Those are both inappropriate relationships, um, kind of false levels and inappropriate levels of control. So I think somewhere in there is something to work with. Absolute level, just do nothing, just do it well. That's it. I mean, really, that is it. You don't have to do a bloody thing but hard for human doers. So if you want something to do, you do all this other stuff, you know, work with um, you know, the relationship, relationship. What is your relationship to the phenomenal display? That's what you can control, okay? I'm trying to be 
I'm trying to be a little bit more prompt with my answers because I have this, this, uh, this, inten this tendency to get infected by my stream of um, thought here. So I'm working on it. This is my practice. <laughs> okay. You're doing great, Andrew. Thanks. It's all about me. I just want to make sure. <clears throat> Thanks. I feel so much better now. Finally. <laughs> right. Okay. I often find myself meditating in dreams, though it doesn't seem lucid. The dream meditations seem very profound with a lot more stability and openness than waking meditations. Is this because there are less stimuli or other things to distract? And also, if one practices a lot of meditations, dreaming, sleeping, could this improve the quality of waking meditation? Absolutely. So let me start with the second part first. So a little bit earlier in this riff, I started talking about how you can use lucid dreaming, dream yoga to prepare for death. This is a... This plays on this really interesting term in neuroscience um, called bidirectionality, where you know what you do in one particular state can have an effect on the other. Um, in this first instance, it was like what you do with the dreaming state can affect what you do in the bardo. But this, what you do in the dream state, it's not just a twofer, it's a threefer, because it's, it's not just bidirectional, it's tridirectional. And this is what makes lucid dreaming and dream yoga so incredibly fruitful, because not only can you bring the benefits forward into the bardos, in a certain sense, you can bring them backwards into, into the daytime life. And, and really, in many ways, that's the point. Lucid dreaming leads to lucid living. Um, and this is the great gift, where what you do at night can, in fact, kind of come back in, infiltrate, and start to affect your daytime experience. Uh, this is really the essence of it. And again, in the Nima tradition and in the, in the, in the Tantras there, it says that the practices that one can accomplish in the dream state, if in fact you are meditating properly, and this is a, something that maybe can be clarified, the practices that you do in your dream state can be up to nine times more efficacious or transformative than, than ex those exact same practices as they're done in the waking state. I mean, again, don't freeze that number. It's an archetypal number. But the idea is that when you're working in, in a more subtle, refined dimension of mind, the, when you're lucid to it, the dream state is actually a little bit more in contact with reality than the reified waking state, which is why even Thoreau once says um, something to the effect of, uh, it is in, when we are in dreams awake or something, we are the most awake. I can't remember the exact quote. But even the New England transcendentalists really alluded to what the Eastern traditions talk about is you are actually more in contact with the nature of reality, the empty nature of reality in the dream state. You're working with the tectonic plates of your mind, the unconscious mind, right? Um, backstage mind and backstage runs on stage. So what you do down there, so to speak, has tremendous repercussions up here. And this is one of the kind of selling points of lucid, especially dream yoga, that you absolutely positively can meditate in your dreams. And also just to take this even a step further, this is an incredibly revelatory and humbling statement that uh, Milarepa talked about, Kempo Rinpoche, my teacher, um, uh, comments on a number of occasions. If you cannot meditate, in the dream state, the way you meditate in the waking state, your meditation's incomplete. You're, you may think you're a strong, powerful meditator, but if you can't meditate in the dream as you can meditate during the day, your meditation's incomplete. Um, and this really makes tremendous sense because fundamentally in the larger scheme where we're going with this practice or bardo yoga or any practice, 
is an actualization, a waking up to the realization of the equanimous nature of mind under all states. It's basically, this is why dream is manifestation of mind. Mind is manifesting, I mean, that's all there is, right? It's either gross, subtle, or very subtle, but it's always mind. And so with full realization, actualization, brought about by these practices, you realize this kind of ultimate equanimity of all states, um, kind of the democratic nature of consciousness, that fundamentally from the perspective of one who is truly awake, all states are seen the same. There's no difference. There's no difference between sleeping, dreaming, and dying. In fact, in uh, Milarepa, in one of his uh, beautiful songs of realization, he says, you know, not seeing day and dream as differing this is as meditation as it can be. And in terms of the bardos, not seeing the here and hereafter as differing, this is instruction as mastered as it can be. So the awakened ones, there's, there's absolutely no difference um, between any of these states of consciousness. So absolutely positively what you do in the dream state totally can affect what you're doing in the waking state. Now, the first part of your question is an interesting one because, it, it, and I wish I, I could actually interface whoever asked this, but if you're not really lucid when you're meditating in your dream, then there are some benefits to a non-lucid meditator in the dream. But because intentionality is not actually being exercised in a non-lucid dream, the karmic effects are not nearly as pronounced. So I'm not to say, I'm not dismissing it. It's fantastic. It's actually an indicator that you're doing something really quite okay, you know, that we dream at night what we experience during the day. Um, and so if you're actually dreaming in a non-lucid capacity, that's fantastic, it's great. But it doesn't have as much power as if you're actually lucid. You wake up in a dream, and these are the stages of dream yoga, and you know, like I'll wake up and I'll go, okay, what am I gonna do tonight? Oh yeah, tonight I'm gonna do stage whatever. I have intention. I sit down, I intentionally, I do whatever practice I'm going to do. That definitely has a lot more impact. Why? Because it's driven by intentionality. And intentionality is the heart of karma. It's the heart of habit creation. So in this case, we want to create good habits. And so really another way to say this is that the, the fact that you're actually meditating in a non-lucid dream is the fruition of the karma you established during the day. But you see, it's not really creating new karma. It's just fruition of your daily practice. If that dream is now lucid, that's a game changer because now you're actually creating karma, good karma in this case. And that's what you wanna do. Um, you know, it's just a way to work with the entire path altogether to replace bad habits with good habits, bad karma with good karma. And then fundamentally to remove karma altogether, get rid of it, clean it. Um, and it's only the truly awakened ones from any tradition. It's only the Buddhas that are truly habit-free. Only a Buddha is habit-free. Only a Buddha is karmic-free. And that's the fruition of all these practices. And when you, when you kind of re, uh, remove all that karma, guess what's the result? You see the ultimate equanimous nature of whatever arises. It has this quality of one taste. Or as they say in the Christian mystical tradition, everything tastes like God because at that point you see everything is God. And that of course is because you are God. <laughs> so something like that. Um, lovely question about the deeper implications of dream yoga. So thank you.
Here's a nice interjection from a friend, David Takahashi. Uh, okay. um, what do you call Bardo students on a Zoom call? <laughs> They're called Zoombies. Zoombies, ah, uh, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Thanks, David. <laughs> All right, next question. I'm still waiting for the Zoom bomb. I, 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 this is the seventh week and nobody's bombed this course yet. So anyway, sigh, expectation, premeditated disappointment. Okay, go ahead. Thanks, David. I dream just before I wake up. Does this mean I'm having REM sleep just before I wake up? It also happens when I nap. It's not hypnopompia, it is proper dreams. Yeah, I mean, not necessarily. Not all dreams arise in REM. Most dreams arise in REM. Um, I can't remember what the exact stats are, but ah, something like 85% of the time, and again, don't quote me on that, but a really, really high percentage when someone is woken up in REM sleep. And, they, and this is super easy to detect, you know, rapid eye movement sleep. Um, EEGs can measure this. It's really easy to tell, especially in a sleep lab where somebody is. But not all dreams arise in REM. There are dreams that arise in non-REM. And there are certain characteristics of those dreams. They tend to have certain qualities that are not um, inherent in REM state sleep. So not necessarily. You can definitely have dreams that, are, that come from non-REM states. So was there something else to that? I think that was it, right? Oh, that was it, yeah. Yeah, good. Love those easy ones, or quick ones, I should say. How can we help those who are so scared, so filled with anxiety, so bursting with distress? Is this abundant gift yet again an issue of access, or is it samsara in action? And does my asking these questions even suggest I understand what I am asking? Yeah, I can't, I can't answer that last one. Um, so repeat the first part again, Andy, just the first part. How can we help people that are in so much distress? Yeah, so scared, so filled with anxiety, so bursting with distress. Well, again, it depends on whether you're in, in personal contact with a person like that or whether you're talking in a more kind of universal way. So if you're talking in a more universal way, um, you actually can help them more than you might imagine. You know, using things like Tonglen practice that we introduced a number of weeks earlier. It's another reason we want to transcribe these so people can go back and, and revisit that. And I can actually start directing a questioner like this to say, go back to that session. Cause then I can go back to those sessions and say, oh, that's what we talked about. I can say, go back to session two where I talked about that. We actually have a lot more power than we think. Um, so let's, a little bit more on that second part. How can we help people that we don't have direct physical contact with? Well, one of the reasons we may feel helpless and powerless in terms of helping others is because we have this mistaken case of identity, identity, um, false, a uh, wild case of mistaken identity, that we think we're limited to this, that you're therefore limited to your thing, and that you know we're really complete independent entities. That level of uh, separation only exists at the most superficial dimensions. And uh, even as they say in the dream yoga, uh, lucid dreaming literature, not even dream yoga, a wonderful statement by dream researchers, um, Robert Ogilvie and Harry, Harry Hunt, I believe, the farther down the rabbit hole you go, the more collective the experience becomes. And so we may be relatively um, ineffectual in this level, unless we're a billionaire and we can you know, relieve people in that capacity. But if we understand the deeper dimensions of reality and mind, and this is what I did talk about earlier, so I'm not gonna say a ton about it, 
the world is not made of matter. The world is made of mind, heart, spirit. And therefore, when you understand that, this is a real empowerment teaching. This is what you know, I playfully now refer to as an abhisheka, a wong in Tibetan teaching, where you have a lot more power than you think. Um, and so to really access this level of power, first thing you have to do is study, um, practice, and come to the belief that, oh my gosh, this is really true. You know, that this little hiccup of, of temporality and physicality is just a little pinched awareness. Deep down, we all share the same bed. You know, we all share the same bed of mind. And so we can be of tremendous help to others, not just humans, but to, to sentient beings, to even the planet by understanding our inextricable Indra's net connection with the entire display of reality. We're not separate from it. Um, this may seem just an outrageous proclamation from a Western scientific stance. And in fact, questions like this usually reveal the degree of one's indoctrination and inculcation in a Western materialistic view. That brings about a sense of powerlessness. That's the type of view this, this the, kind of relationship to reality creates. There's this big, massive, monolithic thing we call the objective physical world. I'm this little mental thing in here. What is my little mental thing in here? How can it possibly affect this massive, monolithic thing? Well, from that worldview, yeah, I mean, good luck. Um, but that's not the way reality is. I mean, that mountain is not out there. You're not in here. At the very deepest levels, and this is obviously well beyond what I can really unpack here, you're no different from that mountain. I mean, I mean, no kidding. This is not hyper, hyper, hyperbolic. This is not rhetoric. This is not mumbo jumbo. You are that mountain. You are that person um, who's suffering. And so when you get that, then you do what all the great spiritual masters do. You know, when they close their doors and, you know, they don't, they're not like me when I'm done teaching. You know, I'll jump, in, I'll jump in my truck with my margarita and my beer and kick back and say, woof, well, I'm glad that's done. I mean, the great masters, you know, they're on 24-7. They go home or whatever. They work at all these incredibly subtle, refined levels to help all of reality. So there's so much there on the cosmological level, maybe enough on that. First part of the question, then, you know, if you're having contact with person, then obviously um, this type, the same type of understanding will help you. But then really the confidence, the stability born from understanding your own mind, your own heart, will be of profound benefit in helping others. Because while our storylines are different, my storyline is not the same as yours. And that's why, again, James Joyce, you know, genius writer, Ulysses, history or his story, I love it, his story, history, is a nightmare from which I'm trying to awake. Stories are different, but fundamental nature of experience is the same. Dalai Lama says this, I mean, this is one, one of his big monikers, is like, you know, we all want to be happy. Pema Chodron, recently teaching extensively, just like me. And so by understanding your own mind and heart, you will come to understand the minds and hearts of every sentient being on this planet. And in so doing, you will then spontaneously know how to benefit others because you know how to benefit yourself. So in a, in a, in a very real way, the answer to both, both questions is the same. An invitation for you to explore deeply, intimately, the nature of your own mind, the nature of reality. And then therefore, the answers naturally, spontaneously flow 
from that type of discovery? Um, and so there's a beautiful deep question, some of which I addressed a little bit earlier and, and maybe I'll let it go for now, but really lovely, takes you in really great places. So something like that. Great. And we have um, quite a few written questions piling up from today. Oh, people are supposed to ask them live. We have one switch to live questions. And there's hands raised too. So yeah, let's, because here's, here's what I'm trying to do. Um, again, we will get to the written questions. So don't, don't get me wrong. We're going to stockpile them. But for me, it is so much better when I get to look at you, pick up some of your vibe. Um, you know, there's what's called paralinguistic communication, paralinguistic phenomena. I love these. These words just make my heart flutter. That's real. That's communication that I can't get from the written word, or even a shared word is is you know is as elegant as Andy's sharing. It's so much more helpful for me if I get to see you, pick up your vibe, and then sometimes I can maybe get a better sense of what you're really asking. So with that said, you can write your questions in if that's the only way to send them, but it's a whole lot better for me. And again, it's all about me if you ask them personally. So let's, let's, with that said, the questions that are written, draw a line, Andy, like next week, we'll come back to those. But let's open it up to people who are willing to raise their hand and ask something in person, because that's just a whole lot better. Wonderful. All right then, Eric, you have the audio to ask your question. Hey, Andrew. Hey, bud. Hey, you're reincarnating. Every time I turn around, you're, you're like there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I, some mirrors behind me as well, maybe you can see them, but, um, <laughs> uh, so this question occurred to me yesterday. I was thinking about what's the epistemology of the Bardos in general, especially, of course, the Bardo of Dine. So, uh, so my understanding is that these come from some revealed texts sometimes that are kind of hidden. And yeah. you also mentioned like the Tugdum meditation, which Tugdum. is a one-way street in my understanding. So I was wondering if there are other, you know, sort of ways that they've investigated this. Okay, so you're pinging out a, a couple, quite a few noodles here, my friend. So let me start with the very first thing. I mean, in terms of the epistemology of the Bardos, um, first of all, there is only epistemology, and that's actually what constitutes the Bardos. Um, so this is, a, this, this is a brief but deep philosophical sidebar that is actually revealed in the Bardos. They're fundamentally, since you asked that and used this term, Fundamentally, there is no ontology, right? There is no reified fundamental ontology. There is only epistemology. And this is in fact what constitutes the death experience. Ontology, the body form disappears. And then the only thing that's left is mind. And so on the, on the deepest possible level, the way to answer that is there is only epistemology. There's only knowing. Now, the other body of questions, what I'm tending to hear from you, Eric, and tell me if I'm right or not, is uh, an issue of proof, an issue of veracity, an issue of different streams that, that kind of verify Bardo teachings. So maybe that's not a little, it's a little opaque to me. So what are you asking along those lines again? Uh, well, just, so obviously they have, I mean, yeah, I guess maybe proof you could say, but just sort of what's the... Yeah, like, like the epistemology, how did they discover these things in terms yeah. of... Yeah, okay, that's what I thought you were asking. Yeah, so the, like a meditation, I can obviously try that and do that. And, yeah. Yes, exactly. So yeah, this is, this is a, a, a rich arena question. Um, there's a number of different ways to answer it. And, and to really take a deep dive here, if you want to look into it, you have to study, indeed, the teachings on logic and epistemology, which in the Buddhist tradition are called the Pramana teachings, Dig, Dignaga, Dhanamakirti, and great masters and the like. And so with that in mind, excuse me, um, here's a quick cascade of this. 
the other thing I might, again, references are helpful. Ken Wilber has a really elegant chapter in his book, Eye to Eye. Two chapters, one on scientism and the second one on the problem of proof, where he addresses this issue using the three eyes of St. Bonaventure, um, the eye of reason, the eye of flesh, and the eye of contemplation. So those are places you can look. But in terms of the, the Tibetan arena, the way they relate to this is using the teachings on um, Pramana. And so here, there are different ways of knowledge acquisition, epistemology, there are different ways of knowing. Um, there's what's called direct valid cognition. I, you know, I believe it because I see it. Inferential valid cognition, logic, you know how that works, where there's smoke, there's fire. And then there's also what becomes particularly interesting to us are the latter two. Um, the most important one is what's called yogic direct valid cognition. And it, this is the foundational type of knowing. This is Gnosticism in the deepest way. I mean, really, in the way that was intimated earlier, where it's not just conceptual knowing. This is, this is Gnostic knowing in the sense that you literally become the so-called object of, of uh, knowledge. Um, and so yogic direct valid cognition is what the great meditative masters experience. And from there, you know, you can enter um, kind of a sidebar, you can enter extraordinarily deep states of practice mind. Literally some practices are absolutely designed to mimic, simulate, and even recapitulate the death process. These are called completion stage meditations where you can gain, according to these teachings, uh, a, a, a tremendous concordant experience of what happens after you die. Actually, proficiency in dream yoga and sleep yoga also allows you to do that. Um, but there are other practices in particular, the completion stage practices that allow you to engage in, in, in such deep meditations where no exaggeration, my friend, you enter states of samadhi, meditative absorption, where all respiration ceases, literally, not metaphorically, um, cardiac function is barely detectable, um, and you're basically almost in a type of um, suspended animation where you've actually, your mind is resting in the luminous bardo dharmata. You're, you're resting in that same space. Um, so then, you know, people come back and they'll report these kind of travel logs from that experience. That becomes somewhat inferential on one level when it's translated because obviously they haven't really died, right? They're still there. It still may be a very subtle dimension of being, but they're still there. So the way, um, the, the latter approach is one that Western um, logicians, philosophers just categorically dismiss. Um, but it's a very compelling one if you really look at it. And this is called the proof of hidden meaning. And what you do here, we abide by this tenet more than we know. And what you do with this one is if you are personally unable to verify these experiences from yourself, i.e. your memory isn't good enough from last life. You haven't experienced these completion stage practices to the degree that you, you just know within your bones, this is exactly what's gonna happen when I die. Then what you do, proof of hidden meaning is you actually kind of work to verify or assess the character of the individual who professes those teachings. Um, and so this may seem like, oh, this is a facile, ridiculous new age way. Well, it's actually not. I mean, you know, for instance, we do this all the time. You haven't studied quantum mechanics, probably. I don't know if you're a physicist or not. Actually, I did take physics as an undergrad, yeah. Right, okay, but let me, let me okay, so maybe you haven't studied neuroscience. You get the idea. We, <laughs> we are not all deep masters in all these traditions, so to speak, 
that other extremely trained people are who've done the work that come back and then profess these truths. Right. And so I trust Einstein, I trust Heisenberg to a certain extent, I trust Polly, all these other people, because I, I, of the character of their being, the integrity of their discipline, and the integrity of their personhood. So we abide by the, the tenets of the proof of hidden meaning all the time, whether we know it or not. We defer to the experts. And so in exactly the same way, and this comes, it's a traditional um, form of unconventional proof whereby, you know, take someone like Tranga Rinpoche or Padmasambhava, you know, people, I mean, I've, I've known Tranga Rinpoche for decades and I've been blessed to know many masters for decades. I mean, I have never, ever, with the real masters, not the pseudo masters, never once have I seen them do anything but speak the truth. Every breath they take is for the benefit of others. Everything they do is to help other beings. Why on God's good earth, even though there is no God, why would they now start to just, you know, lie about these things called the bardos, right? Yeah. And again, from a Western logical point of view, it's like that, that just doesn't hold water. Well, actually, I believe it does. Um, and so maybe I'll leave it that uh, for now, Eric, because I think if you, if you reference um, eye to eye and, and look at the works of Dignaga Dharmakirti, um, look at the teachings on the proof of hidden meaning, um, you'll get a pretty decent grasp of where this stuff comes from. You know, these great awakened masters, because they've woken up to the dream of reality, they never forget their, their awareness is on 24-7, constant consciousness. And so when they go through the bardos, they have complete utter lucidity and recollection. There's no blacking out. There's no memory loss. And then people like um, Padmasambhava, who wrote the historical Tibetan Book of the Dead, it's just a travelogue. He just comes back from this vacation, right? And said, oh, I went to Italy, then I went to France and I did this. And this is what it's like when you go to Italy. This is like when you go to France. So somewhere in there. Yeah, yeah, that's, I, I think it's uh, totally fair to use the analog to, you know, people talk about quantum mechanics, there are very few people who've actually studied it, for example. So. We abide, we abide, we defer to this a lot more than we think. And so the people that dismiss this is, is a, you know, kind of a silly way of deriving proof. Uh, that, that, to me, doesn't hold a lot of water. So anyway, thanks, bud. Okay, thank you. And next up is Michelle, and you have the audio to ask your question. Thanks, Andy. I appreciate it. Um, hi, Andrew. Um, Hello. Thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. Um, my question is a lot more practical, I guess. Okay. Um, I've been recording dreams for a long time and it gets really tedious. I get into all these details and all of a sudden it's an hour later. I'm right. going, what am I doing here? Um, and so lately, so kind of two questions. One is I've been kind of just writing the flavor of the dream yeah. more yeah. Yeah. and trying to, you know, take less time with that. And then my other question is when I have those really salient dreams mm -hmm. that are, you know, feel like they've got, uh, a lot of juice in them to do something with, what's the best way to um, continue working with them? And maybe you've answered some of this before. I'm yeah, sure. no, great, great questions. Right. So um, several things here. One is you don't have to write down all your dreams. I mean, dream recollection mm. is important for dream yoga, lucid dreaming practice. Um, but at a certain point, once you start remembering your dreams, don't, don't, I mean, okay. if I did that, I mean, I, like you, I would be writing for three hours every morning. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, I've no kind of kidding. dropped that, but I wanted, I wanted to know it was okay, I guess. <laughs> it's beyond okay. So really the principal reason to record, so mm. to speak, all your dreams mm -hmm. 
is when you hardly remember any of them. Okay. Then that practice is really helpful. Right. Um, but at a certain point, and you Absolutely. know, at a certain point, those are training wheels. Those training wheels will fall by, mm -hmm. and eventually you're just going to naturally start to remember more dreams. Yeah. Um, the only dreams I write down now, and this alludes to the second part of your question, are in fact the ones you're talking about. Yeah. It's kind of charged dreams. They're sometimes called theophantic, theophantic dreams, dreams of clear light. Um, there's all mm -hmm. kinds of different names for these. These are the ones that you just know. They, they tend to happen more often than not just before you wake up. Not always, but they mostly, do, yeah. mostly just before you wake mm -hmm. up. Yeah. They just carry a type of charge. You wake up from these babies and you go, whoa, that was a special dream. Mm -hmm. Those are the only ones I write down anymore. Mm. I date them, I label them, and I study them. Because those are the ones that are delivering a message that is really worth paying attention to. A lot of these other dreams, any dream can be used for lucid dreaming, dream yoga, any dream. Mm -hmm. All dreams have validity. Sure. But not all dreams deliver meaning and impact. I mean, some of it is just neurological noise. But still, even that you can get lucid to and then work with. So what I do with the, with the ones that really carry oomph is I date them, I label them. Sometimes I, you know, I'll star them as a really, you know, this is a, uh, what's called a prodromal or prophetic dream. Sometimes these, these mm -hmm. carry a type of impact that, I mean, no exaggeration. You pay homage to these dreams, and this is not an exaggeration. They can literally save your life, yeah. literally. Um, yeah. And there's some really haunting videos I could refer you to about people who, who had these types of dreams where they weren't tended to, um, and, you know, really bad things happened. So, you write those down, you study them. Again, this is not overtly lucid dreaming or dream yoga, but this is a larger spectrum of, of even psychological, very beneficial psychological relationship to dreams, where then you can work with your dream therapist. You can work with dream interpretation. Whole different league of practice. Um, so many different really interesting writers talk about ways to interpret parenthetically. One of my favorite books is Eugene Genlin, Using Your Body to Interpret Your Dreams. Really beautiful book. Um, but maybe something along those lines. Yeah. So, but um, do you ever try to re-enter those dreams? You can, absolutely. Are you talking about the same day or the next day or? Uh, well, sometimes the same day, but also maybe the next day. Yeah. yeah, totally. Absolutely. If you can, that's a great thing to do. You know, you wake up, you go, oh, that was fantastic. Oh, cool. I want to go back in. Yeah. So, you know, then literally I, I try to return into the position I was in when I had the dream, close my eyes, replay it, like playing a loop over. There it is, there it is, there it is. There it is. And then sometimes there'll be enough there that I can kind of drop back in. Usually I don't quite go all the way. I'm kind of popping in and out. But if you can do that, fantastic. Um, and in fact, uh, allegedly Rene Descartes, um, mm -hmm. you know, basically I read at one account where he derived his dualistic philosophy over two or three nights of, of oh, contiguous dreams where he the next night he entered the dream that he had the night before the, th the third night yet again and then unfolded this amazing yeah. you know, kind of philosophy from that type of thing that's not that unheard of i have not had um, a whole lot of um, those types of dreams but i know people who have but yeah you can play with those well when you talk about that moving in and out place um can you say a little bit more about that like how to work with that because I've definitely I'm going to refer you, I'm going to, I'm going to refer you to a book. Okay. Um, Liminal Dreaming by Jennifer Dumper, D-U-M-P-E-R-T. 
Okay, this is a big topic. Another one is um, Hypnogogia by Andreas Mavromatis. That's a monumental book on hypnagogic dreaming. Um, liminal dreaming is just Jennifer's term for that. And because this is such a big topic, I'm going to refer mm -hmm. you to those sources because you seem to really be interested in it. Jennifer's, I interviewed her, by the way, in nightclub. Mm -hmm. So look up that interview. She's a sweetheart. And her book, is quite, her, her book is quite lovely. I would start with that. Mm -hmm. And then if it really feeds you, look up Andreas's book. But that's Thanks. a big deep beast. So. Thanks cool. a lot. Okay. And next up, Deborah Blake, you have the audio to ask your question. Hi. Can, Hi. can you hear me? Hi. Yeah. Um, a, a couple of things. It sounds like I'm going to have to take your lucid dreaming class since everybody's talking about it. Well, yes, you have to, you have to buy every gonna... book I've written and take every course <laughs> I've presented. I'm going to have to do that. Um, I, one thing I want to say, and then I actually have a question. I was listening to your um, talk last night on the 10 part series and about oh, yeah. just that the world isn't that it's, it's not real that it's not there you know the whole thing about the optic vision and sure. and it was and i know you know years and years and years but it was terrifying to me i i don't get it at all in some ways and i was just i had tears coming down just out of you know sadness and fear and i don't um i don't quite you know are things there or not there? Yeah. Oh, um, uh, what a great question. <laughs> so, so thank you for asking this. Um, so the sadness was, can you say more about the sadness? What was the sadness about? Part of the, part of, part of the sadness was that I'm never going to get it. That oh, it's okay. going to be. That kind of sadness. So, yeah. and, and then there was also, of course, the ego sadness. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. Um, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cool. So thank you for asking this. So, you know, first of all, don't despair. Um, <laughs> where um, you're, She's taking this class that we're doing, uh, this 10-week thing. So she's talking about, uh, we're starting in this class to, to enter into the deep end of the pool, the teachings on emptiness. Um, and it's extraordinarily common to have these types of reactions. And so there's so much to say here. I'm not going to unfold just a ton right now but I'll give you enough to, to throw your life raft <laughs> because as we go forward, what may initially seem to be a little bit of bad news, you will see is extremely good news. Um, and not really, I'm not being patronizing here. So hang with us um, and you'll see. But here's the thing. When we say, when the tradition says that things aren't real, they're also, they're, they're, they're also saying that things are not not real. Hello, are you still there? Hello? Did she disappear on me? It looks like her Zoom froze Yeah, up. well, let me just, uh, she can listen to the recording. When, when the tradition says that things aren't real, and immediately, um, or sooner or later, we'll also qualify that things are not, yeah. not real. Oh, you can Yeah, um, you're back. So yeah, so, the type of reaction that you're expressing around this deep dive into truth, it's exactly what you were saying towards the end of your offering. This is just your ego having a bit of a cardiac arrest, right? Because remember what I said at the beginning of that talk, uh, these teachings can be hazardous to your egoic health. 
Um, and there, there is a part of you, the egoic part, that just doesn't want to hear this, is afraid of the truth. And when the Buddha allegedly, when the Buddha gave these teachings, archetypally, 500, again, archetypal number, don't reify the number, 500 of his most senior students had heart attacks. Well, of course, they didn't have physical heart attacks. Their ego went into cardiac arrest. <laughs> and so this stuff is designed to get underneath your skin and show you fundamentally that there is nothing underneath your skin. And so it's only threatening, and this is why in the earlier class, I think second class, third, I can't remember now, I gave a brief survey of the different dimensions of our being, and that if we only identify with the outermost superficial egoic levels of our being, this is precisely revelatory of our identification with that level of our being, because this is the part, the fully formed, constituted, reified aspect of our identity that is in fact threatened by this truth. That fake news is being threatened by this real news. And that's actually really good news. Um, it may not be really good news to your ego, but it's really good news to your spirit. And so this is why we have to have a really good map, a map of mind, a map of reality, so that when we enter these deeper um, travels and we you know, start going down some alleyways that seem to be kind of gauntlets, um, there's a reason why um, these superficial dimensions of your being just don't want to go here because it's a death threat. <laughs> and that, and that, that's just part and parcel for the game. But it's only a death threat if, if you're identified with that outermost level. And so this, this sense of fear is a really good thing, which is why I'm going to devote an entire talk in this class and also a program I'm doing at Smile Mountain Center, another chance to promote myself. In August, I'm doing an entire weekend on this uh, notion of anxiety and fear. And so everything that you're feeling, I'm not being smart alecky when I'm saying this, is really good news. It means you're starting to get towards the truth. And if we don't actualize a more um, sane relationship to this fear that is percolating behind everything, I mean, the enormity of this is, it cannot be overstated. This fear that you're feeling, that you're accessing, this sublimates everything you do in your so-called waking conscious life. Everything you do, this is what it means to be asleep or hypnotized or whatever you want to call it. Everything you do in your so-called waking conscious life is a very sophisticated, indoctrinated avoidance strategy of these foundational truths that are protected by fear. So you start getting closer to the truth, more and more of this barbed wire and flamethrowers of the ego comes out, says, I, I can't do this, I'm too stupid, I'm gonna lose my mind, I'm gonna go crazy. You know, if you don't understand that that's really good news, you know, ego's uh, defensive strategies will work yet again. You're gonna run away from the stuff, back into the comfort shade of, of your conventional uh, distraction strategies, and then live your life escaping from this foundational fear of the truth. So if you understand that this is really good news, then you're going to go through it. And, you know, this, this sense of sadness will be replaced with exhilaration. And eventually all of it will be transformed into a tremendous sense of fearlessness, confidence, levity, and just, um, you could almost say ecstasy 
um, at least it's ecstatic in relationship to this. So I'm not going to say a ton more because you are taking this class. Um, and we're going to go through everything I just threw, these noodles I just threw out. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about this stuff because this is the only show in town, actually. Um, and the fact that you're getting down to this fundamental show and you're having these reactions, I'm not kidding. This is actually a really good sign. So um, don't worry, you're not going to lose your mind. Um, the deepest part of you is going to celebrate where we're going. And I'm going to defer the rest of it because um, otherwise you're going to hear me say it two or three times over the next couple of weeks. Okay? Can I ask a follow-up to that? Uh, you know, at this point, I um, want to try to allow other does people... Does this have anything to do... Okay. Okay, go ahead. Okay. 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 What's the, what's the follow-up? Um, just the, the um, question that I've been... I'm just wondering about, and maybe you'll get to it, has to do with nature of mind meditation, because it comes up and it doesn't get addressed. And um, is there do any place favor. in this course that that? Yeah, do me a favor. Yeah. Um, yeah. Actually send that to Tracy um, okay. and, and ping it and say, Andrew said it was okay for you to forward this question to him. Um, okay. And I'll address it okay, there. I'll do that. Okay? Great. Okay, thank you, Andrew. Welcome. All right. Uh, next up with the audio is Keenan, and you have the audio. Oh, hi, Andrew. Good to see hey, you. bud. Que pasa? Hi. So uh, I have a I have a quick question here, or perhaps not so quick. So I uh, my question is regarding uh, how to deal with with an illness. In my uh, kind of path, I've been dealing with some health challenges for quite some time and uh, lately they've been kind of challenging and I'm trying to um, I find some kind of conflict within myself in terms of uh, how I'm framing the situation so uh, one is what you just said that uh, you know about when you were saying about karma and how we relate to it and uh, so if if the unfolding of the way my life is, I can say, okay, there's a certain karmic karma and I, I, all I can do is how I relate to it. And on the other side, um, also on how we reify uh, certain things. So when, when I'm looking at my illness and how, how I see it, I'm also very careful about uh, not to reify a label of, let's say, a, a diagnosis. Beautiful, good for you, like yeah. That's so that, that's what comes to my mind. That's something I'm, I'm struggling with. And I want, what I see is that there is an inner conflict and uh, I, I would like to get more in line so that I'm not working in two different directions. So the conflict being those two alternative ways of relating to the illness, is that what you're asking? Yeah. And in, in, in one way with the karmic landscape, and as you said, the, the complexity and how we, we relate to it and to kind of relate to it with grace and with surrender. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, mm -hmm. uh, not coming from an egoic place, but also to see that the, the interrelatedness of how I'm creating my experience. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. So I'm yeah. dealing with this every day when there is pain or when there is a challenge. Yeah. Again, what a beautiful set of questions. Well, first of all, it's not like you re reify some things, my friend. We reify everything. Um, and so your insight right at the outset is a good one that don't, you know, don't let the diagnosis, don't reify the diagnosis. It, it's because otherwise 
you know, it's not like you're going to have cancer. Cancer is going to have you. So th this gets a little bit interesting because, um, you know, there's a, God, there's so much to say here. The near enemy on this level, the near enemy of clarity and articulation is in fact reification. So somebody comes along and tells you, you have whatever. Isn't it amazing? And I, I'm, you know, I work in the health sciences and the like. It's incredible to me how often I, I have patients come in and they have literally come to identify with their illness to the mm -hmm. point that they use it as a scapegoat in a, in a way to kind of rationalize everything that happens to them. It's like, oh my God, you know, I'm just afflicted by this whatever, fill in the blank. And it just completely dominates their lives. And so the first thing is don't let it do that. Um, but the near enemy of that, of course, then is going to the other extreme and then just dismissing it. So the near enemy of the kind of a graceful um, approach is gracefulness does not necessarily beget acquiescence in the negative sense. So you want to understand what's happening. You don't want to reify it. And you don't necessarily need to acquiesce and just surrender on that negative front where, yes, you want to be able to say yes to it. Your mind is big enough to contain it. But for instance, if I had cancer, I might be able to say yes to it, but I would still go see my oncologist. I would still do the chemo. I would still do whatever. You know, so it's like these, these approaches are not irreconcilable. These approaches are part of integral approaches to working with health. You can use the very highest view, the absolute view of acceptance, op openness, even, you know, um, just saying yes to what's happening, realizing that that's just the fruition of karma. And then at the le on the more relative levels, then you do whatever you need to do to kind of to kind of work with it. So they're not necessarily irreconcilable. They just need to be slotted into different bandwidths of this integral approach. And then really, that's the key to me is is there are so many different ways that we can approach, especially the healing arts. Um, and yeah, I mean, maybe I'll leave it at that for now, unless you have a follow up question. Just because you know my mind is just going down so many alleys yeah. here because the topic is so huge. Um, maybe I'll just pop it back at you to see if you have a follow-up before I get. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, thank you so much. I just wanted to say that uh, one of the things that I'm sensing as as I'm kind of swimming through this is uh, uh, I also work in the in the in the health industry in the, in, in the research and uh, at least in the Western space. That's what I've noticed is the the, the labels and 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 diagnoses are, are sought after. And uh, so I, I have a little bit of an anaphylaxis to that now because I've, you know, uh, feel like uh, disillusioned with that. Um, but I was going to ask, even in the spiritual circles, uh, I find that the, there are folks or healers where they have these extremes. Extremes. An extreme vision would be, it's all in your, in your mind, like just go to one one direction is like yeah it's called single action bias it's a big <laughs> yeah it's a big problem yeah so no it's, it's good to hear so I, I i guess it's to to just um keep both of it, these these yeah. together yeah and is it accurate to say uh, just to check with you that i find these come come in waves for me is that sometimes one is dominant than the other absolutely. and easily accessible absolutely, absolutely. Okay. yeah exactly and have a heart and mind big enough to accommodate all these things and again one last thing about um, our, you know, diagnoses and names, language is tremendously powerful. It's actually what separates us from most of the others, so-called animal kingdom. Tremendous great gifts. 
But also language is one of the greatest traps because you know, language is almost inherently dualistic. Language is based on nouns. There are no nouns in reality. There, there are no nouns in reality. They're only verbs. And so the minute you, you articulate anything into a noun, you're already off. And so from there, you can just see the, just the morass of, of subtle um, traps that we get snared into. Language is just one of them, but it's a big one. Um, and so, yeah, just realizing that, yeah, I'll just leave it at that for now. So just- Excellent, excellent. Thank you so much. Yeah. Take care, my friend. Cool. We got a few more minutes. Uh, next up is Anne. You have the audio, Anne. Hi, Andrew. Um, first, I just want to thank you. I'm doing your Tuesday class, too. And Thanks. wow, it's just been the perfect medicine for this whole stretch of time. Um, I've been really blessed in that I started practicing in my early 20s with Suzuki Roshi and my teacher, Coben Chino. Oh, wonderful. And I sort of have migrated along different paths, spent some time with Thurman that was a blessing, traveling, laughing a lot. <laughs> yeah, he's a character, huh? And, you know, now with retreats with, with Songi Rinpoche, and I, I have always sort of struggled with the Tibetan because it's felt so esoteric to me. Mm -hmm. and your classes have been really wonderful in terms of a certain way they've brought it down in such a clear way. But my question kind of is, comes up to do with um, an experience that just happened yesterday. And I think I sat with it so differently having been with you over the last weeks in that I had a very dear animal that I'd had for 21 years, unexpectedly go through the start to pass. Yeah. Um, and the whole thing of, that you've talked about, about contraction, it was so interesting because I didn't contract um, and I was able to just be there and hold her and be with her as she did that. Mm. Um, and I have sat twice other times with family members as they died, but the, there was something to do with in that last expression struggle she made and it was so clear her soul was gone. Yeah. But it was interesting because it was the afterwards that I contracted. It was the grief. Yeah. Um, and I'll get Terry. Yeah. Was, All good. My, you know, ego. No, you know, I want her back, or or just the contraction. And I guess so. The two-part question is just grief, contraction. Yeah. You know, how to sit with a feeling, and at the same time, you know, it's been helpful. I've been doing you know, that open awareness in the morning and just resting on whatever came up, but not proliferating it in a way. Mm -hmm. So that part and the other part is just how to practice for her as she's doing this journey. Yeah, well, first of all, you know, my heart goes out to you around pets. I, I, I'm a big pet lover and, you know, I, I've gone through that journey several times myself. Um, it's never easy. Um, I, I like you, you know, sometimes pets are so much easier to be around than humans, right? <laughs> so there, I mean, so many beautiful things here, painful things. Um, one is perhaps the most important thing is what you were saying, you know, just having the courage, the heart to just be there, um, be with that feeling. Don't try to get rid of it. Devour it. Remember we we're talking about alam grasa, hatapata, you know, just, can let 
let yourself be cremated by the intensity of the fires of that experience without trying to dilute it with distraction and also more importantly without indulging it just simply um, drop into your body and let your your full soma just feel whatever is taking place and in so doing you will purify this death and you, the memory will be um cleaner in a certain sense it will it will not lead to things like complicated grief in the future you will be able to therefore digest what has happened and actually become somewhat lighter for it a couple of things about pets pets don't suffer when they die like we do um, they don't relate to time like we do um, and because they don't have these referential capacities that we do we suffer a whole lot more than our pets do when they die so from her side, his side, realize that this is, you know, they, they, it's among the most natural journeys for these animals. If only we could die with the grace that they do. And so for us, and this, again, this question is, is, is beautifully prescient because since you're taking the class, this is where we're going. I'm going to say something that may seem a little cold, a little uncaring, but it's not. And, and if you hang with me, and you will because you're taking the course, you'll see the truth of this. Our biggest issue, uh, really, take a very close look, is just this insatiable propensity we all have to solidify, to reify, to contract. That's just what we, as ego, does. That's because that's what ego is. Ego is the archetype of contraction. It's the archetype of reification. And so it's like King Midas. That's what it does. It just plasters everything in its own reified image. And so the world, as we'll see, and again, just for those of you who are taking the class, the world is not made of matter. Um, the world is not made even of flesh. The world is made of this ineffable fabric that we try to append all these labels to, one of which is emptiness. And that's why emptiness is so incredibly important to understand. Um, and so what we do is we're the ones that freeze the empty, permeable, dreamlike, malleable nature of reality into these kind of discrete reified objects. And therefore, we suffer in direct proportion to that level of reification. And so we grieve because we impute upon the world a, a status that the world does not inherently have. And so, in fact, our, our grief is directly proportional to that level of reification. Um, and so what, what you will understand when you take this deep dive look into emptiness, one, I, one, one way I play with it, is that the world is just made of rainbows. I mean, it really, take a good look at reality. Reality is just made of rainbows. We're the ones that freeze this rainbow light. And so when something is taken away from you, or a pet dies, or a loved one dies, or something ends, that's just what rainbows do. That's just what rainbows do. And so if we, if we come to understand this view, then when something, someone dies, it doesn't mean we don't feel anything. We actually feel more, but hurts less because we're not appropriating it. We're not grasping it, right? And so Suzuki Roshi, speaking of, of Suzuki Roshi earlier, allegedly, I wasn't there, but allegedly when Suzuki Roshi died, he was a dear friend of Trungpa Rinpoche. And allegedly when he died and, and Trungpa Rinpoche first heard it, he wailed in anguish, just his, his best friend had just died. But within who knows what period of time, he, he cremated it. In other words, that experience was, it was just so pure, so direct, done. 
That doesn't in any way dismiss the elegance and the beauty of your pet or your lover, or it doesn't matter. It doesn't dismiss that at all. It just basically recontextualizes it, reframes it in this larger, more realistic perspective when you realize that impermanence is just the expression of emptiness. That's the way emptiness expresses itself. And in fact, Suzuki Roshi, allegedly, not allegedly, I've read this, when he was asked, you know, for his irreducible definition, what is Buddhism? How would you define Buddhism? What's the fundamental teaching of Buddhism? He said, everything changes. Everything changes. That's just talking about the direct expression of emptiness. And so then, you know, that's just the world, what the world does. And it doesn't in any way dismiss the beauty of, of the passing of whatever, but boy, does it help recontextualize it, reframe it in a new light. You know, so raise your gaze, realize that, you know, today, just today, in the human arena alone, over 150,000 people will die. Trillions of animal forms will die. Over 250,000 human beings will come back into this earth today. Countless trillions of animal lives will come back into this birth. And so this beautiful animal is just taking a dance. It's just skipping its way into eternity, as you will, and, and recycling this beautiful thing we call awareness. Um, and you know this, this slightly uh, uh, uncomfortable, painful display of reality, emptiness, is just the way it is. Just the way it is. So, thank you, thank you, Andrew. I, I can relate to all of that because I think a lot of it I practice, and being right in the moment of it, it's just nice to hear you say it all. Welcome. My heart goes out to you. It's so hard. My pets go. Oh. So take care of yourself, dear. Okay, maybe one more, Andy. Yeah, we have about seven hands raised. In the oh, so, okay. Well, I'll, I'll try to ping through a couple of these a little bit quicker then. So, All right, no problem. Uh, next up is Darnell, and you have the audio. Appreciate it, Andy. It was cracking. It was cracking, Andrew. Oh, I wow. I can't even believe I'm talking to you right now. That was crazy. Oh, the question that I have for you is actually relates to your dream sculpting course on the Mind Valley platform. Oh, wow. Before that one. Oh, cool. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, what's it called? I'm a big fan of Mind Valley. Um, I do yeah, want to ask vicious. you about yeah, Visha, yeah, he's a crazy motherfucker, dog. <laughs> crazy motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, man, big fan, man. Word. And um, it just relates to that. Um, the whole Mind Valley platform consists of um Jim Quick with the super brain with meta learning, and then it, uh, oh, yeah. I'm excited, I'm super excited to ask this. Meta learning, um, what Vishen Lakiani is doing with bending reality, manifestations, intuition. No, um, yeah, he's a character, yeah. Just released his ultra um for ah, don't lose it, don't lose it, Donald, don't lose it. Oh, Jose Silva's ultra mind uh system, and then oh, oh well, yeah. I really. Yeah, he does some good stuff. He, yeah, I just wanted to ask, uh, how can lucid dreaming and then even um dream yoga evolve all of these practices because it's super powerful if you embody this in the physical realm but evolving this in lucid dreaming is that a is there a way to actually um evolve all of these different totally you get what i eat yeah totally okay. Okay. yeah and i kind know, of have an extension to that too yeah totally my friend for sure you know i mean really this is why um in, in my language, I talk about lucid dreaming as the education, the pedagogy of the future, right? Because 
I, I, really, I firmly believe that when the induction methods are refined and people can gain greater access to lucidity, it really does represent a revolution in learning. And th again, this is not just rhetoric. So like Matthew Walker, um, big time mm -hmm. PhD neuro neuroscientist out of Berkeley, he wrote this amazing book called Why We Sleep. I refer to this little section. He only spends three pages on lucid dreaming because he's, you know, he's not a lucid dreamer. He's a hard kidding, kidding scientist. But at the wow. end of this book, he says something amazing where he says, it is entirely possible that lucid dreamers represent the next iteration in Homo sapiens evolution. Um, and it's a mm. radical, it's an amazing statement. And, and for sure, let me just say one really quick thing about this that, that is so awesome. Please. Put a little teeth into it, beef into it, is that it's super interesting. Yeah. Dream, lucid dreams are called um, metacognitive dreams, where mm. meta, meta means you know, a, a, above dreaming, a, a, a thinking about thinking, awareness of awareness. And what's really interesting about metacognition is that um, metacognition, like a metacognitive dream, knowing about knowing, is associated with the, the parts of the brain that have most recently evolved in human evolution. They're literally, literally, not Ooh. metaphorically, they literally represent the leading edge of the human brain, the, literally mm. the frontal and prefrontal cortex. And so like, for instance, if you were to take, it, if you were to take your eyes and roll mm -hmm. your eyes and look straight up, you're looking at the right frontal now. prefrontal cortex. This is why apes mm -hmm. have their apes, their foreheads are sloped. Because when, you, when an mm -hmm. ape looks up, that part of the brain is not there. And so huh. what's super interesting is that these aspects of the brain, literally the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, the orbital frontal cortex, and the pecunius, these are the aspects of the brain that come back online, guess what, in a lucid dream. Huh. So this is neurological footing to Matthew Walker's statement that lucid dreamers could represent the iteration of human leaders. As a, as a lucid dreamer, of course, my dear friend, tongue in cheek, I have mm. no doubt that I'm leading the edge of human evolution, right? <laughs> totally tongue-in-cheek, totally tongue but you get the idea. Yeah, um, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm joking on that one. Yeah. That's what, I'm going to leave you with that, that, that this is one reason I'm so excited about lucid dreaming. Right. Because I really do think it, it's, it's this kind of pioneering um, thing. And of course, we're not special. Nobody's special. But I think you get the riff. You can totally do anything that you're doing in the waking state, you can do in the dream state. And in fact, it has a little bit more impact if you do it there, especially if you do it when you're lucid. Okay, bud? Do I have time for one more question? Or I know there's six other hands raised, so there's not time. Let's, let's see how quick it is, because I do want to get to them. So let, I'll, I'll try to answer it quickly. All right. It relates to the uh, 2016 book that you released. Um, I believe the seventh or eighth dream yoga practice of right. mm -hmm. um, what's it call it um, going into the apparatus of either an object or another dream character. Oh um, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, um, you said you had kind of trouble doing that practice at that time. Uh, has it evolved for you ever <laughs> since? I'm curious. <laughs> you know, I'm still a loser on that one. You know, it's. Ooh. Of all the practices, that, that is one of the hardest ones for me. It's much easier for me awesome. to actually go into an object than it is into another um, dream being. I've done it on some wow. occasions, but um, mm -hmm. I'm, still working, I'm still working on that one, bro. Still working on it? Yeah. All right, man. Um, nice to see you, man. Uh, Andrew, infinite gratitude, dog. Big fan, dog. All, all right. right. Take care of yourself. Good to see you. All right. You as well. You as well. Appreciate you, man.
Batman. All right, and uh, next to have the audio is V Bauer. You're gonna get it, one second. There you go. Hello, thank you. Hi. My question. I have a question that relates more to the outer world and this crazy world that we're living in. And if it's in the context of, you know, if what's manifesting <clears throat> is our mind, if we are co-creators, um, you know, in the, in the vein of not complaining practice, I would like to know how to relate to the craziness in the world without contributing craziness to it. Um, and I and I have a I have something here. There was I listened recently to an interview with Joanna Macy, yeah. and somebody asked her, "How can we avoid thinking of the forces we are up against as evil? Where is the goodness in decades of destruction?" And her answer was, first of all, that is absolutely the quickest way to tear our world apart, yep. to project that they're evil. Okay. And then she talked about the Shambhala prophecy. So I, I just see this craziness, and, I, and so I don't want to contribute to it. I want to take what I'm learning as a Buddhist practitioner sure. to try to heal the world, to... Um, you know, do what I can, but it just seems so insane that it's hard not to want to complain sure. about people who are, you know, on totally. the political, totally. you know, the political, okay. etc. Totally, I get it. So first of all, good for Joanna Macy for saying that. I could not agree more with her. There is no such, fundamentally, there's no such thing as evil. Um, there's reified confusion. Um, if we append the label evil to it, we're just reifying confusion. And so I could not agree more. Don't approach things in that way um, because the world doesn't, you know, there's, how did, how is it says, you know, there's no fundamental ignorance. There's just partial knowing. Um, and so that's a really important thing. Secondly is, is really to just simply kind of work from the stance that you're already expressing. And that is that, you know, the world may be displaying itself in this confused way, but there's no reason for you to get swept along in that approach. You know, the idea is really to relate to that world um, in a more skillful way, that developing a sense of compassion, understanding, empathy, understanding where people are coming from. Um, because if we can't do that, if we can't open our hearts, to others, and this doesn't mean I have to immediately throw into into the to the mix. This does not mean that there are times where tough love isn't in order. In Buddhism, they talk about the the karma of destruction. There are times when kind of heavy-handed actions are warranted. But the point for us now is that the craziness of the world is not inherent in the world. That those are adventitious. They're 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 not inherent to reality. No matter how crazy the world fundamentally gets as radical as this proclamation may seem, it is absolutely the case that the world in essence is divine. It's pure, it's sacred, it's basically good. That's just the way it is. That may be not so easy to describe and really understand from a, a Western perspective that's based on original sin and sciences that degrade everything at the matter. But those are just interpretations on reality. These more foundational truths, these are reality. And so, 
based on that perspective, we can then approach the craziness of the world with a relationship of empathy, understanding, compassion, and therefore really enlightened activity that is responsive instead of reactive. And so this is all based on the practices of open awareness, accommodating, understanding, relating, feeling things more, uh, I should say, yeah, what did I say? You feel things more, but they hurt you less. So because, because you're taking the class, right? You're taking the, the, yeah, again, some of the people that are taking the class that are asking these questions, this isn't in the arena of where we're going in this class. So with your kind permission, I'm gonna defer the rest of it to those sessions because I think um, what I'm gonna be addressing there will really help you. That's where we're going. The last session in this class is gonna be exactly about taking these vast teachings and then bolting them to gritty reality. I mean, what do we do with these amazing teachings when the world is going to hell in a handbasket? So I'm gonna come back to all this in quite some detail in the course and I'll refer to the rest of it then, okay? Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank Take you. care. Okay, Andy, maybe a couple bit, couple bit more. Sure. Um, Deborah, you have the audio to ask your question. Hi, Andrew. Hello. Tuesday night class also. And, okay, cool. Um, the question has already been addressed, but since I got a chance to ask it, I'll have to ask it again. And, okay. Okay, I'm trying to come to terms with, so emptiness is emptiness of intrinsic existence. It's not nihilism. So it doesn't mean nothing exists. It just means nothing exists in and of itself. Correct. Yeah. So um, when we talk about, well, you know, he doesn't exist, you don't exist, blah, blah, blah. The problem I but have with- same, Let me say it right at the beginning. But it's also saying that they don't, don't exist. Yeah, I know you've been saying that. That's great because, <laughs> yeah, and I appreciate that because otherwise, I mean, you know, you know, let's have more pandemic and we no longer have to exist and maybe the whole world will evaporate. You know what I mean? I mean, that's not right. what we want. That's a, near, so, that's a near enemy of these teachings for sure. Yeah, so that's what I'm feeling is that like you talk about spiritual bypass and if I really, you know, I, I make this mistake that, you know, oh, this stuff doesn't really matter. So I don't attend to the details of my life when I should. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about being here and now and actually dealing with this non-existent yeah. world? <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah. I mean, another great question. So, the, you know, they're near enemies everywhere, right? So one of the near enemies of these absolute level teachings on emptiness is in fact absolutism where you, you really, it's very easy to trip into nihilism, spiritual bypassing, all kinds of subtle things. But what we're going to be exploring that will be a total game changer here is that the, we tend to think, and even if you're a Buddhist, it's, it's unfortunately embedded even in the literature where we say things like the essence of thoughts is dharmakaya, nothing whatever, but everything arises from it. That type of statement is replete in the spiritual tradition and it's unfortunate because what, uh, and I'd be, be really curious to see what the foundational translation here is because what it does is it subtly begets a cosmological dualism that somehow emptiness is other than form, that somehow emptiness is other than the world. This is a monumental and extremely common misunderstanding of emptiness. You know, especially when you associate emptiness with the Dharmakaya, everything comes from the Dharmakaya. That, that is a subtle cosmological dualism. In the Heart Sutra, which so many Buddhists say that but we, you know, we never really understand until the day we die, form is emptiness. Form doesn't come from emptiness, form is emptiness. 
So when you're looking at this thing right now, this is emptiness. Right here, right now, this is emptiness. And so that immediately dismisses um, nihilism, spiritual bypassing, all these extremely common traps. And it also, this is the foundation of non-theism. It's right here, right now. So emptiness just simply allows you to look at the world of form in a much more accurate way until you realize their ultimate union. It, they're the same. The world doesn't come from emptiness. The world is emptiness. And if you understand that, and, and that's why emptiness is not so easy to understand, you then realize that emptiness is fullness. So if, we, if this was easy, we'd all be enlightened. Um, and so these are, these are among the deepest teachings in the tradition. And that's why we have to really kind of work with them until we get them into our system. But this is one of the most important takeaway messages. Because otherwise, it, there's, you know, common default is this near enemy of these escapist tendencies. And that's unfortunately, um, it's even in the literature, even in the liturgical practices, they, they kind of intimate this kind of arising from. That's, that's a mistake. It doesn't arise from, it arises as. Big, big difference. Okay? Yeah, thank you. I just want to give you an image that being in your class, listening to you, is like riding a wild horse and trying to keep my seat. <laughs> so thank you. It was fun. Okay. <laughs> right. Put the saddle on there. Okay. How are we doing, Andy? We still have a few. I really want to honor the people that have been waiting. I hate to leave people hanging, so I'll try to get through these. Uh, yeah, definitely. There's uh, three hands raised right now. And uh, next up is an old friend, Joseph Parent. Oh, my gosh. My right. parent, Joseph. Hi, Andrew. I, I left the golf course and decided to go into retreat in the mountain. Okay. <laughs> I got to meditate. You know, it's nice. Cool. Um, I love it. You look, you're like yeah, absolutely beautiful. Again, especially when people were getting, talking about getting teary-eyed. Um, because that, that was in some of the chats and also the young lady who was talking about her pet. Uh, it, it, it's interesting, sometimes we get more teary-eyed about pets because of their innocence um, than, uh, than human beings. Okay. But, uh, I did want to ask you, you had mentioned the crying meditation. All right. Can you give us the quick version of that? Oh, geez, my friend. You know, it would make me that next week. Yeah, let me let me put that on a priority list for next week because I did, I, I keep start off next week with a, a a practice and then go to questions after that. That's yeah, fine. let me do that because I did promise I was going to do that and and I haven't gotten to it yet. I, I can't do it quickly, so it would make me cry if I tried to do it in the crying. Yes, we don't want to cry. That's so I will start. I will start next week with a with a, a riff on the crying practice um, because I did say I was going to do that. So let's let's we'll do it then. Okay, that sounds great. Cool. Okay, my friend, hit him straight. <laughs> and uh, next up will be Anisha. And you have the audio. Okay, Anisha wants to ask next time. Okay. Okay, and then Annette. Um, and Annette, you have the audio. Yes. Um, thank you, Andrew. Last night I had the very first um, uh, dream where I was aware, and um, cool. it was it was just amazing. And and I 
and I became aware it was about my husband and an old friend and they both had passed and myself and we were walking back and we're like lost and there's this person with this like scythe but it wasn't the grim reaper outfit it was but a man and he wasn't coming towards us but there there was fear there and all, all of a sudden I go wait a minute I can I I am aware that I can change this and then all of a sudden I my friend came around the corner with the car and picked us up and I woke up and I go, wow, I changed the dream. There you go. And I was, it was incredible and I couldn't believe it. And then the rest for the next two hours, I was in this real, real um, silent, still deep stillness of just being with my breath. If there was the breath was really light. It was just, it, it was the first first experience and I, I couldn't believe it. And I just, uh, I, I don't know, I just, I need to look into more about what you're doing. <laughs> Good for you. I mean, that just makes me smile because it, you know, it really, it's, it, it opens up a world that we all have access to. You know, it's, it's really, it's like we're sitting, sleeping on top of this incredible vast natural resource that um, remains untapped. And if we can attain awareness like you did last night, lucidity, these are, this is no small thing because, uh, you know, you're, you're touching into these truer dimensions, really. Um, it, it's not quite the same as a near-death experience. I've, I've never had a physical near-death experience. I've certainly had many spiritual near-death experiences or even death experiences. But the real beauty of these types of things is, you know, it's exactly what you're suggesting is when you have um, experiences of this magnitude in, in beauty and import, you know, that we talk a lot about waking up on the wrong side of the bed. Well, you can wake up on the right side of the bed. And it's not only, you know, like when you wake up on the wrong side of the bed, not only does it ruin your morning, it can ruin your whole day. Well, when you have these experiences, you can wake up on the right side of the bed and not only will it affect your whole morning, it can affect not only your whole day, it can change your life because you're dealing with these kind of foundational tectonic plates. And the reason they're so transformative is in fact because they're so foundational. You come up from those things and you may not be able to put it all into words. You just know something really deep and profound just happened. And then what you can do is take refuge in that. Use that as a type of what's, what they call pointing out transmission, which is pointing out a dimension of experience and reality that perhaps was previously unavailable to you. And then just like in standard pointing out transmission um, events, then the practice becomes one of revisitation, so to speak, stabilization, growth, where this is a glimpse. Now we transform that glimpse into a gaze. And that's where the practices come into play. So it's not just this kind of serendipitous type of thing. It actually can be something brought about a little bit more concertedly and deliberately through practice. Um, and then the magic just gets bigger and grows and grows. And so I can just say, um, congratulations, good for you. It's, it makes me smile. These are the type of things that really can change lives. And um, 
you know, I would say nurture that, but again, don't get attached to it. Use it as a kind of transmission, but do not create a new metric for your practice. Um, this, the problem with these types of things is like, oh, I'm never going to have that again. We almost tend to unwittingly set a new bar and that if we don't reach that bar, we're inadequate. No. What we want to do with these experiences is treasure them from what they are and then release them completely. Just let them go. Um, because in, in a very real way, trying to um, too overtly grasp those experiences is like a little bit like trying to grab mercury. Trying to grasp it will evade it. Um, and so it, maybe I'll leave it at that. Just congratulations. It's beautiful. Nurture it, um, celebrate it, and then let it go. Thank that's, you. That's the way you'll come back. Okay? Terrific. Thank Thanks, everybody. Appreciate it. It's always fun to hang out with you. I got to jump in my truck and go drink my margarita. So.